When I was a little boy, I asked why. I was curious about the world. I was very interested in causality. Why, mommy, why did things happen the way they did? Why, daddy? Now, in all truth, in all honesty, sometimes I asked why in order to resist certain things. Why do I have to go to bed? I really wasn't looking for the reasons, but rather to wear down my parents and to see if I could get another half hour of fun time in the evening. But most of the time, I was genuinely curious. Today's episode, episode 75 of the podcast Interior Integration for Catholics is titled The Blue and the Orange, Reconsidering Depression and Mania Through the Lens of Parts. It's released on July 5th, 2021, and we are getting into the why of two very common psychological conditions, depressive episodes and manic episodes, the fundamental diagnostic criteria for the diagnoses of depression and bipolar disorder. But we're going to do it in an unusual way. We're going to focus on the why. All right, let's head over to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. This is the major diagnostic manual. And according to its publisher, the American Psychiatric Association, quote, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM, is the handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world as the authoritative guide to the diagnosis of mental disorders. DSM contains descriptions, symptoms, and other criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. It provides a common language for clinicians to communicate about their patients and establishes consistent and reliable diagnoses that can be used in the research of mental disorders. It also provides a common language for researchers to study the criteria for potential future revisions and to aid in the development of medications and other interventions. Okay. That was a long passage, a big mouthful, but notice what's missing in this passage about the goals and purpose of the DSM. It says nothing about the why of different conditions, and it says nothing about informing the treatment of any condition. The DSM has a long history of being atheoretical. It doesn't actually purport to get into the causes. It claims it doesn't, but it actually does. It takes a biopsychological model of the human person, a biopsychological model of illness. It makes no claim to help actually treat these diagnoses. Now, we're going to go much further than the DSM in our discussion of depression and mania today. We're going to look at depression and mania through the lens of our internal parts. And I'm clinical psychologist Peter Melanoski, your host and guide in this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. And this podcast is all about psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview. It's all about shoring up the natural foundations for our spiritual life. It's all about grace perfecting nature. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com. And that is our online outreach to help the English-speaking Catholic world overcome psychological obstacles to being loved and to loving God and neighbor. That is what we are all about. 
So we are focusing on depression. Let's just talk about how serious of a problem depression is. The World Health Organization estimates that 264 million individuals worldwide suffer from depression. That's about 3.5% of the world's population, but in the United States, it looks worse. In the United States, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health from 2017 estimated that 17.3 million adults had at least one major depressive episode. This is about 7.1% of all U.S. adults, and it's much higher for women than for men. And when we look at adolescents, age 12 to 17, an estimated 3.2 million adolescents. That's about 13.3% of the U.S. adolescent population age 12 to 17 had at least one major depressive episode. And they're young. They're having one major depressive episode before the age of 17. That's about one in seven adolescents. So these are major issues. And depression's been around for a long time. When we look back to the earliest written accounts of depression, they appeared in ancient Mesopotamian texts in about somewhere between the first and second millennia BC. Now, Mesopotamia, that's the land between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, where the peoples of Babylon and Assyria dwelt. That's modern day Iraq and Syria. And back in those days, In the Akkadian language, there was a diagnostic handbook, which was a series of 40 clay tablets. And in that Akkadian language, we have this quote. If depression continually falls upon him, he continually sighs. He eats bread and drinks beer, but it does not go well for him. Then he says, oh, my heart and is dejected. He is sick with lovesickness. It is the same for a man and a woman. So you can see going back more than 3,000 years, there were attempts to classify and diagnose depressive symptoms. We see it in Psalm 42 when King David says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? This is about 1,000 BC when David's writing this. And according to Hippocrates, who lived in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, he wrote this around 400 BC, his model of medicine was based on imbalances in the four humors. And melancholia, which was the old Greek word for, for depression, was supposed to have been caused by an excess of black bile. Actually, that's where the name came from, right? Black or dark is melas. And kole meant bile, right? There was too much black bile in the person's system, right? And so if a person had a constitution with too much black bile, they were likely to be melancholic. And that was characterized primarily by fear and sadness. But let's at least go back to the DSM and let's take a look at what the diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder are. So you need five of these symptoms, there's nine of them, you need five of them at least over a two-week period that represents a change from baseline functioning. So depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, a loss of interest and pleasure, previously enjoyable activities, weight loss or gain, insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day, so inability to sleep or sleeping too much, Psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. And what that means is that you're sort of sped up 
psychomotor agitation is being sped up motorically or psychomotor retardation is being really slowed down physically. Fatigue or a loss of energy nearly every day. Feelings of being worthless or having excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Decreased concentration and thoughts of death or suicide. So this is what so this is what the standard diagnostic criteria for a major depressive episode is. And, you know, the causes are debated. The causes of major depressive disorder are not well understood. According to a WebMD article, it lists the following. Abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Age, stating that the elderly are at higher risk for depression. Certain medications are more prone to cause depression, such as antiviral drugs and corticosteroids. Conflicts can lead to depression. Death or a loss can lead to de- depression. Women are about twice as likely as men to become clinically depressed. Genetic factors might be implicated, major events, personal problems, serious medical illnesses, and substance misuse. Those are the things that the WebMD article came up with. Other causes from Harvard Health Publishing include stressful life events, early trauma and loss. I think they're all missing the boat. I think they're all looking at things that are risk factors and that are correlated with symptoms of clinical depression, but they're missing the most important causes. And I reviewed these in episode 62. In episode 62 of this podcast, I talked about attachment needs and I talked about integrity needs. So let's just review those because I'm not convinced that just being a woman is a cause for being depressed. I don't believe that being a senior citizen is a cause for being depressed. I don't believe that having personal problems necessarily leads one to be depressed. I think they're I think we can be much more specific about this if we get theoretical, if we actually start to look at these things from a more complete understanding of the human person. So let's go to what these attachment needs are. A felt sense of safety and protection, a deep sense of security felt down in the bones, feeling seen and known and heard and understood. That's the second one, that felt attunement. The third one, felt comfort and reassurance. The fourth one, feeling valued, delighted in, and cherished by others. And the fifth one, feeling supported for being the best person you can be. Those five things are the attachment needs that Brown and Elliot have laid out in their book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults. To those, I add these integrity needs. We not only need uh, attachment, but we also need to have a sense of integrity within ourselves. And so we need to know that we exist. We need to know that our existence is separate from others. We need to know that our identity can be stable over time and across different situations. We need to know that we can regulate ourselves, that we have some self-control. We need integration. We need coherent interconnections inside of us that helps us to make sense of our experience. And we need to be active with agency. We need to know that we can effectively function in the world. We also need to know that we are morally good that we are ontologically or essentially good, that we have intrinsic value and worth, apart from what anybody else might think of us. We also need to be able to make sense of our experience in the world around us, and we need to have a mission and purpose in life. 
And we need to be able to make good choices, to seek what's good, true, and beautiful in life. Those are the integrity needs that I think we have. And so what I'm arguing is that depression comes from these attachment needs going unmet, these integrity needs going unmet, leaving us in a position where we experience shame, that sense of unworthiness. We did a whole series on shame in this podcast, but also feeling unloved, unwanted, rejected, isolated. So that's where we're looking at the beginning of the causal chain. And all of this goes back to sin. All of this goes back to sin and its effects. All disorder does, right? That's original sin, the sins of others, and our own personal sins, and the effects of those sins. That's not something the DSM can tell you. It's something that we can know, though, by being Catholic. All right, but let's start to consider major depression from a parts perspective. We've been talking a lot about how our systems include a body, a core self, and our parts. And what are these parts? Well, these parts are separate, independently operating little personalities within us. They each have their own prominent needs, their roles in our lives, their emotions. They have their own body sensations, their guiding beliefs and assumptions. They have their own typical thoughts. They have their own intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, their own interpersonal style. They've got their own worldview. So these parts of us, when they're not integrated, when they're not working collaboratively and cooperatively, they have a huge impact on our experience. And here's what I really want you to know. When there is significant depression, that depression is always carried by the parts. We often say something like, man, I'm really depressed. But what that really means is that a part of me is depressed. And that part of me is really prominent right now. That part is in the front. It's blended. It's driving my bus. It's coloring my entire outlook. But it is not all of me. It may seem like it's all of me. If that blend is really strong, if it's really complete, it will feel like all of me is depressed, that the depression has taken over my whole being when it's really only that one part. Even though it's really only that one part, though, it still can feel like it's everything. We can have that distortion, right? There's always a reason for a part to do what it does. Parts always have good intentions. They're always trying to help, but their impulses can be misguided due to the limited vision that they have. Because they are parts acting independently of the core self, they miss things. They don't see all the consequences clearly. They're like the blind men and the elephant who we discussed in the last episode, episode 74. A blended part tries to convince us that its point of view is the only point of view, that its agenda is the only agenda, that its perspective is the only perspective, that its proposed course of action is the only proposed course of action. And what happens when we're blended is that we get tunnel vision. We start to see the world only as this part does. Now, depression manifests itself in different ways depending on the roles or functions that different parts play within our systems, right? Remember, there's three major roles that parts have in our systems. The first are the exiles, the second are the managers, and the third are the firefighters. So let's start with the exiles. We're going to review this. 
The exiles are really sensitive parts. These are the parts that have been exploited, rejected, or abandoned in external relationships. They're the ones that have suffered attachment injuries, relational traumas. And these exiled parts hold the painful experiences that have been isolated from conscious awareness. And why are those experiences separated from conscious awareness? Why are they in the unconscious? Well, that's to protect the person from being overwhelmed with the intensity of the experience that the exiled parts hold. These parts have stepped into the breach. They've taken on these experiences, all of this unresolved intensity, in order to allow us to continue to function so that we're not perpetually overwhelmed. The part is overwhelmed, but then the part is banished from conscious awareness, still holding that unresolved material. These exiled parts desperately want to be seen and known. They want to be safe and secure. They want to be comforted and soothed. They want to be cared for and loved. They want rescue and redemption and healing. And so in the intensity of their needs, in the intensity of their emotions, with the burdens that they carry, like depression, these exiled parts threaten to take us over and destabilize the person's whole being, the person's whole system. They want to take over the raft because they want to be seen and heard. They want to be known. They want to be understood. And they can flood us with the intensity of their experience. And that also can harm our external relationships. There's some tremendous disadvantages to that. These exiles can carry burdens of shame and dependency and worthlessness, fear, terror, grief, loss, loneliness, neediness, pain, a lack of meaning or purpose, a sense of being unloved and unlovable, a sense of being inadequate and abandoned, and also the burden of depression. Exiles are the parts that step in to carry the burden of depression so that depression doesn't overwhelm our systems and incapacitate us. And protector parts exile the part that are burdened with depression because that depression is so toxic. But these exiles with the depression, they want to be heard, seen, and known and understood. So they attempt to jailbreak. They want to get back on the raft. And the only way they know how to be accepted on the raft is to become king of the raft, like we were talking about it in episode 74, and overpower all the other parts. Then they hope to be seen and known and heard and accepted and loved. But because they blended with the self, because they dominated the self, because they took over, there's no possibility of being in relationship with the self. So these parts, when they blend, they're able to scream their pain and distress. They're able to signal it. They're able to overwhelm with the intensity of the experience. But that doesn't get them what they really want. When a depressed exiles take over, they wind up shutting the system down. You see that, dis- that depressed mood. You see that anhedonia, that loss of interest and pleasure. You see that insomnia, or it could be hypersomnia, psychomotor agitation, or retardation. You see the fatigue, the feelings of worthlessness, the problems with concentration and attention. And you may even see thoughts of death and suicide, right? So exiles can bring that depression to the fore. But that's not the only way that we become depressed. Let's talk about how managers also can carry depression. Now let's remember, managers are the proactive protector parts. These are the parts that work strategically, they work with forethought, they plan, they're working hard to keep control of situations and relationships to minimize the likelihood of you getting hurt. They work really hard to keep you safe. 
So they have an agenda. They are controlling. They are striving. They are planning. They are caretaking. They are judging. They can be really pessimistic. They can be really self-critical. They can be really demanding. Managers can use symptoms of depression to try to keep us safe. Let's go through some of these symptoms again. Depressed mood. right? So a manager can use pessimism to keep us from trying new things and to keep us from risking failure. A manager can use a loss of interest and pleasure, can use that anhedonia to keep us from enjoying a romantic relationship that might challenge us, that might develop into some kind of committed relationship, but that the manager is really terrified of. Managers can keep us gaining weight in the hope that we don't attract others' attention so that we don't get raped again. Right? A manager may have this belief that it was being thin that caused the rape, and so we're going to continue to eat and be depressed so we never are in that situation where we might be taken advantage of again. Psychomotor agitation or retardation. You know, letting others know not to expect too much of us, keep your expectations low, working proactively to kind of make sure that we don't get overextended. And let's take a look at that insomnia. Managers might protect us from the nightmares that exiles share with us when we sleep by keeping us from falling asleep. Decreased concentration. Well, that may keep us from being promoted to management at work so we don't have to handle the difficulties of having subordinates, some of whom might be really challenging for us. So you can see that managers can also carry and use depression in various ways that look really different than what the Excels are doing. Well, let's talk a little bit about firefighters and how they use depression. So when XLs break through and they threaten to take over the system, like in the movie Inside Out, firefighter parts leap into action, right? So it's an emergency situation at that point. It's a crisis. So there aren't any concerns for niceties, for propriety, because there is a desperate situation that, that firefighters are, are looking to counter with direct action, with bold, drastic actions. They are focusing on stifling, numbing, or distracting from the intensity of an exile's experience. So this can lead to depression being used as a tool in the firefighter's kit. So remember, firefighters are always reacting to an XL breaking out and an intense depression, feeling really, really sad can be a way that firefighters protect us from feeling the crushing emptiness that an XL might be carrying as it attempts to jailbreak, as it attempts to break through. So in the in the firefighter's mind, the depression, the sadness is much better than feeling a void of nothingness that leads us to start questioning whether we even exist or not, right? So the firefighters pursuing an integrity need of knowing that I exist, protecting against being swept away by the soul-crushing nihilism of an exile burdened with a void, with a feeling of being nothing. Can you see that? Can you see how it would be better to feel something, even that really intense sadness and depression, than to question whether you exist or not? 
right? So that's how a firefighter might use the intensity of depression to ward off something worse. Another example might be fatigue. Firefighters can often use fatigue, for example, under the belief that it's better to spend 20 hours a day sleeping than to cope with the overwhelming grief and loss that an exile carries due to the recent death of a spouse. Firefighters are also the ones that might resort to suicide as a desperate attempt to escape from the intensity of some other kind of pain. It might be seen as the only viable release from an impossible situation. Now, something really important here is to remember that parts are not their roles. Parts are not their functions and parts are not their burdens. All of those roles, functions, and burdens can change. If parts are unburdened, they no longer have whatever burden they originally carried. Parts can give up their burdens of depression if the conditions are right. That's called unburdening in internal family systems. So as the person's internal system becomes more and more integrated, parts begin to trust in the leadership of the core self more. Parts become more collaborative. Parts become more cooperative. Parts find new, constructive, healthy roles within the system. And one thing that's really important to also remember is that parts can hold their intensity. Exiles do not have to overwhelm the system with the intensity of their experience if they believe that they will be helped. Now that may be really new information for managers and firefighters because anytime they may see that exile, it's when they're attempting to break through and take over the entire system. But exiles only act that way if they feel they have no better option. What we're about in doing this internal work that's informed by internal family systems is to give them better options. So let's take a little bit of a poetry here. This is the first part and the last part of a, of a poem by British actress Cara Delevingne. The poem is called Depression, and this is how she opens it. Who am I? Who am I trying to be? Not myself, anyone but myself, living in a fantasy to bury the reality making myself the mystery, a strong facade, disguising the misery, empty, but beyond the point of emptiness. And she concludes the poem with these three lines. I'm lost. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. Right there, you hear the voice of the exile carrying the depression. I'm lost. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. That part is just looking to connect. It's looking for relationship. It's looking to be understood, connected with. It's looking to be heard, seen, and known. Those are the attachment needs. Those are the integrity needs that we've been talking about. And that's how this experience of depression plays out. I think understanding this from the perspective of parts 
makes it so much clearer and so much easier to work with these things internally. We're not just experiencing them as as impersonal drives. We're not just experiencing them as conflicts or interjects. We're not just experiencing them as sort of the epiphenomenon of consciousness, but they're actually organized into parts and those parts make sense once we begin to really enter into their worlds. So let's shift gears here and start to talk a little bit about mania. Well, what is a manic episode? The DSM-5 defines a manic episode as, quote, a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood and abnormally and persistently goal-directed behavior or energy lasting at least one week and present most of the day, nearly every day. So during this period of mood disturbance and increased energy or activity, you got to have at least three of the following DSM symptoms. The first one, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity. Number two, decreased need for sleep. Number three, more talkative than usual or pressure to keep talking. Number four, flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing. Number five, distractibility. Number six, increase in goal-directed activity. Number seven, excessive involvement in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. Number eight, the mood disturbance is significantly severe to cause marked impairment in social or occupational functioning. Number nine, the episode is not directly attributable to a substance or to another medical condition. About 2.8% of U.S. adults have a bipolar disorder diagnosis, and bipolar disorder affects approximately 5.7 million adult Americans aged 18 or over. It's also been around for a long time, We can go back to the first century AD where the Greek physician Areteus of Cappadocia, he's credited with being the first to express the concept of a mood spectrum where you've got these extremes of mood that somehow go together. All right, so I'm going to argue that mania is primarily used by firefighting parts who are defending against a crushing depression carried by an exile. Let me invite you to notice that the defining characteristics of manic episodes, how they're the polar opposites of depression. Now, psychoanalytic theory holds that manic episodes are a denial against being overwhelmed with grief or loss. But I say that manic episodes are much more than denial. A denial would simply say something like, not so. In this case, I'm not depressed. But a manic episode is often a firefighter part saying, not only am I not depressed, but I'm so not depressed that I'm the exact opposite of depressed. How could anyone even possibly consider that I might be depressed, that I might be struggling with depression? It's an absurd thought. Look at all the great mood I'm in. Look at all the energy I have. Look at the wonderful self-esteem I have. Look how much I'm getting done. Look at the risks I'm willing to take. No one who is depressed does all that. But to paraphrase Shakespeare and Hamlet, methinks thou dost protest too much. And that's why I choose the color orange to represent mania. Orange is the chromatic opposite of the blue of depression. 
I think it's how parts with mania often express themselves. Now, this is something that touches me personally because there's a long history of bipolar disorder that goes back generations in my family. And it's had a lot of impact on me personally. And while I personally have never met the criteria for a manic episode or hypomanic episode, I certainly can feel those dynamics within me. In episode 71, which was titled A New and Better Way of Understanding Myself and Others, I offered you a description of 10 of my parts, right? And so one of those parts you might remember is melancholio. Melancholio is the part of me who has carried my sadness. And melancholio's color is a deep blue. Each of my parts has a color. And they use those colors. We use those colors when I'm journaling and I'm expressing, you know, the, the experiences of my parts as I get in touch with those. Melancholio writes with this deep blue color. And my creative part, who happens to be orange, is the one that can really rev me up, that can really take on some of the qualities of a manic episode in order to protect me from the intensity of the sadness that sometimes Melancholio carries. So, I wrote a little poem of my own to describe what goes on within a system that is experiencing the tension around mania and depression. And this is a haiku called The Inner Waters of Mania. Surface waters roar, churning to drown the silent sobbing of the deep. Let's review the symptoms of manic episodes, right? We've got this inflated self-esteem. We've got this grandiosity. We've got a decreased need for sleep, pressure and speech. We have flight of ideas. We have distractibility. We have this increase in goal-directed activity, this agitation. We've got this excessive involvement in risky activities. And it's serious. The mood disturbance is, is, is causing market impairment in social or occupational functioning. And I want to bring in another poem. This is a poem called The End of Euphoria by K.Y. Robinson. I found this earlier today at kyrobinson.net. She put it in a blog post with four other poems about mania on her website. And I emailed her. We had a great little exchange. She was willing to let me read this on the air to, to use this. And I thought it really captured something of the experience inside of parts within somebody struggling with mania. K.Y. Robinson is expressing through poetry some of her own experience with bipolar dynamics. So this is her poem, End of Euphoria. It got a hold on me and I danced for hours. Every beat reverberated through my body and became my new blood. I didn't want to leave. It made me feel like I held the universe in the pools of my irises and in the bends of my body. Then the dark side of the moon came. I burned myself out like a star and crashed into melancholy. The marmalade of mania was no longer sticky and sweet. My mind turned against me. You can see the intensity here. 
I'm going to argue that there's a part within these dynamics that's depressed. And there's another part that's protecting against it, that's guarding against it with the intensity of mania. Remember, too, that firefighters can be exiled as well, right? And so there's often the struggle that people who have bipolar conditions where a manager part is struggling against the part with mania who is struggling against the part with depression. So there can be all of these internal battles going on among parts that are burdened with different things. And because these parts only have partial vision, because they have a a very limited vision and they have a very specific agenda and they have very specific things that come from their experience that they're protecting against or that they're trying to bring to attention, you get parts working at cross purposes. So what's the alternative? Rather than trying to suppress or repress parts, the alternative is that all parts are welcome. The alternative is that we get to know all parts, that we understand their concerns, that we address them, that we witness all parts, that we recognize that all parts are that all parts are good and that all parts have good intentions, even when the means they use may be really maladaptive or harmful to ourselves and to other people. It's about working toward that interior integration. It's about working collaboratively and cooperatively across parts. And it starts with that unblending that we talked about in the last episode, episode 74. Well, a lot of people ask questions about medication. I get a lot of questions about medication. And so let's start with this disclaimer. I'm not a physician. I'm a psychologist. I don't have prescription privileges. I have a PhD. I do not have an MD. And I don't give advice on medication choices or on dosages in specific cases or anything like that. If you think your medication is helping you, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I don't want to try to dissuade anyone from taking medication for psychological issues if they think it's helping them. But here's the thing. So much of one's thinking about medication depends on what they see as the cause of the problem. It makes sense to take medication if you think that psychological problems pop up unpredictably because of spontaneous chemical imbalances. You take the medication to restore the chemical balance and reduce the symptoms. That makes sense if that's how you look at the cause or the etiology of psychological problems. But professionally and personally, I don't see it that way. I don't believe that psychological symptoms are so random, spontaneous, and unpredictable. On the contrary, once you understand a person at the level of parts everything becomes so much clearer. You can see reasons for everything, even for the content of delusions and hallucinations, even for severe self-harm behaviors, cutting oneself, burning oneself. If you enter in to the phenomenological world of the other person or into your own world, the behaviors, thoughts, feelings, body sensations, attitudes, the dysfunctional patterns of social interaction, they all begin to make sense. Now, There are cases in which a psychological problem can be purely or primarily organic. It could be due to a medical condition, for example, due to head trauma that caused brain damage or due to a brain tumor on the pituitary gland that disrupts your whole endocrine system resulting in mood swings. But most of the time, psychological symptoms have psychological causes. Chemical imbalances are often present, but those can be caused 
by psychological factors. So let me give you an example. If another driver swerves in front of you and brakes hard on the freeway and you narrowly escape a wreck by veering onto the shoulder, your heart's racing, your palms are sweaty, you're struggling with a lot of fear, would you really say that your fear was caused by a chemical imbalance? Of course there's a chemical imbalance there. But really, was it the perception of a real threat to your safety through this near accident? You know, as a Catholic psychologist, I want to move much further back in the causal chain than chemical imbalances. I want to address and resolve the trauma that causes chemical imbalances. I want clients to heal from the shame and from how they perceive themselves to be unlovable. I want their unmet attachment needs and their unmet integrity needs to be met. I challenge anyone to show me the psychotropic medication. I want you to show me the antidepressant or the mood stabilizers that can do that, that can heal trauma. Look at how the pharmaceutical industry markets those drugs. They tout how their drugs provide relief from certain symptoms. They don't promise anything about resolving the underlying causes of the symptoms. They don't talk about unmet attachment needs. They don't talk about unmet integrity needs. So medications can and on some occasions should be used to help with symptom management if the person's parts are in agreement. And IFS therapist and psychiatrist Frank Anderson has written a lot about this. There's a role for medications, but with the medication, let's also be seeking healing at a much deeper level, at those primary causal levels. So let's be seeking for that healing at those deeper levels, at those primary levels, at those first causal levels, not just at the level of psychophysiology. Because Freud, more than 100 years ago, discovered something he called symptom substitution. Freud was using hypnosis to treat certain kinds of hysterical paralysis. And it was successful for resolving the symptom of the paralysis but it wasn't getting at the root cause. And so what he found was that these, what I would say are parts, these parts found other ways to express their distress. They found new symptoms. Freud called that symptom substitution. And that's what I think is going on when effective medications psychophysiologically knock out different symptomatic expressions. The underlying distress that parts have wind up getting expressed through other means, through other symptoms. And I think a lot of these get labeled as side effects of the medication. It's really just another example of symptom substitution because these new side effects don't have any known psychophysiological relationship with the active ingredients of the drug. What's happening is that those parts that are being psychotropically muzzled are finding different ways to express the distress. And that's most likely to happen, I think, when the medications are effective at blocking at a neurological level, at a physiological level, the particular symptom expression that the part was originally using. So, uh, that's... All I want to say about that for right now, I'm sure that's a lot to think about. I'm going to invite you to get in touch with me. If you've got questions about that sort of stuff, you can certainly call me during my conversation hours. Those are Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Reach out, call me, 317-567-9594. That's my cell phone number. You can also email me 
at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. June 2021 has come to an end, and the Resilient Catholics community is now closed to new members, but we've started a new waiting list for when the RCC reopens on December 1st. If you're on the old waiting list, you'll have to re-register to get on the new waiting list. You can get on that by going to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. I'm going to encourage you to stay with the podcast. Subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Interior Integration for Catholics is on all the major podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Pocket Casts. We're on all of them. And due to your listenership, we have just climbed into the top 2.5% of podcasts according to listennotes.com, but we're still unknown to so many people, to so many Catholics. It also helps if you leave us reviews on the podcast, for the podcast, on your podcast platforms. I also have something very exciting for, for you men out there. Dr. Jerry Crete, who is the co-founder of Souls and Hearts with me, he invites you to join the Catholic journeyman community. If you're looking to be a part of a community of Catholic men seeking to improve relationships and overcome life challenges, he provides weekly office hours, monthly web meetings, and small groups with mentors and more. Check that out at soulsandhearts.com backslash catholic hyphen journeymen or at catholicjourneymen.com. And that's journeymen, M-E-N, not journeyman, M-A-N. Check that out. Something really worth exploring. So I'm going to invite you to pray for me, that I be small, that I be humble, that I trust in a childlike way in our Lord and our Lady, and that this podcast bring to you what you need to hear, that I can be a vehicle for you getting what you need. And to that end, again, I encourage you to reach out to me. Let me know what you need. I'm going to be doing an episode where I'm in in the next few weeks where I'm answering listener questions. So if you have questions that you want me to answer on the air, email me, crisisatsoulsandhearts.com, text me 317-567-9594, or call me at that number. And with that, We'll call it a wrap. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Pray for us.